0: This is The Law School Show, discovering the person behind the resume, bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show.
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of The Law School Show. My name is Miho and I'm your host for today. I'm a 2L student at the University of Ottawa, and I'm super excited to be hosting this episode as I have a very special guest. So for those of you who are interested in immigration law, whether you are currently a law student or just curious about immigration law, this episode is for you. Or if you have no idea what immigration law is, I mean, feel free to stick around to learn more about it. My guest today is a University of Ottawa alum who graduated in 2018. He is now a practicing lawyer who is working at an immigration law firm based in Ottawa. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining me today. I have so many questions to ask you.
0: Thank you for having me, Miho.
1: I guess, firstly, um, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do?
0: Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm an immigration refugee lawyer here in Ottawa, and I'm practicing with a firm known as Jeremy Law PC here in Ottawa. Um, and as an immigration refugee lawyer, that's uh, that's all I practice. It's immigration and refugee law all day, every day. Um, and within that area, the practice is fairly broad, um, and it ranges from everyday things like uh, individuals who need assistance with work and study permits, or obtaining visas so they can visit family, Um, But we also do a lot of work with individuals who are seeking refugee protection um, and also want legal assistance and legal advice with their asylum seeking process. Um, Also dealing with people who perhaps have had their refugee claim refused and they would like to appeal it to the Refugee Appeal Division or to the federal court. Um, And we also deal as well with uh, people who aren't seeking to flee persecution, but also would face at the same time um, hardship. Um, upon their return to their country of origin through uh, what are known as permanent residence applications on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Um, And so we deal with sort of a little bit of everything from, you know, people just wanting to be here to people who really need to be here and making sure that everybody is taken care of.
1: I see. So I guess you are pretty much helping a wide range of folks navigate the Canadian immigration system, which I mean, from what I know, is quite complex. I, I feel like some people might think it's simple, but maybe it's not.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit sneaky is uh, what I try and describe it as. You know, so for some people, it would be fairly simple. You know, for an example, if you're, if you're an American with no criminal record and you just want to come up to, you know, watch a baseball game in Toronto or something, then, yeah, it might be pretty simple. But uh, for others, uh, there are quite a few legal hurdles that they, they need to navigate, and we just do our best to, to assist them with that.
1: So I guess firstly, just um, kind of thinking back to your law school years, um, you are a graduate of the University of Ottawa from which you graduated in 2018. I mean, first of all, how was law school for you? (laughs)
0: Uh, Law school, I think, uh, I think I had a fairly, you know, average experience in the sense that I found it really challenging. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's definitely as anyone listening to this podcast will know if they're a graduate of law school, or they're in law school right now, more likely, um, you know, it's an incredibly difficult and challenging period of your life where um, you have to, you know, you have to challenge yourself to do things and perhaps study more than you have had to in the past. Um, along with those sort of you're navigating the next steps of your life at the same time, deciding, oh, you know, what area should I article in? What should I do? What do I want to practice in the future? Importantly, where do I want to practice in the future? You know, do you want to try and, you know, shoot for Bay Street and try and do that? Or do you want to go back home? Do you want to stay where you went to school? Um, Things like that. Those are all questions that people have to navigate. And I had to sort of find my way through as well. Um, So, yeah, it was just, you know, a lot of stress, but it was also a lot of fun as well. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to law school with a lot of really, really incredible uh, people um and people who are am you know fortunate enough to still be friends with today. um and so I you know f- for that part of it, there was still so a lot of good memories and a lot of laughs that were had along the way, um even though you sometimes you know had to study or write papers until uh, you know two or three in the morning a few too many times or later
1: right i can I can kind of attest to that as well. like being in my second year, I've met a lot of people from very different backgrounds than me, like. For my major in undergrad, I was a global development major and a poli-sci major, which is maybe a little bit more typical, but I met, you know, students who had an engineering background or an arts background or a music background. It was just really just like a wide range of backgrounds, So, so that was really interesting. And I can also definitely attest to the fact that law school is very challenging. Um, especially first year, first semester. I mean, who, you know.
0: Isn't that a brutal time, hey? Like uh, you, you walk in and you just see that, uh, well, I'm not sure if the orientation at U Ottawa was the same for you as it was for me, but there's just about, you know, your whole class of about 280 students just packed into a lecture hall. And then you realize that their collective GPA is, you know, four or higher kind of thing. <laughs> it can get pretty intimidating pretty quick. Um, not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, they, they make you read quite a bit in that first week too. And that, that first year of just sort of navigating um, you know, through 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 a whole new discipline and sort of trying to figure out how the plane works as you fly it um, is definitely a, a not a fond memory. But looking back on it, I can chuckle a little
1: bit. Right, it is. You know, I do find that it was a whole like different way of even thinking and just learning and studying and reviewing. It was just very different from from undergrad. Um, but I guess going into a bit of the immigration law. Theme. What first got you interested in immigration law? Like, why immigration law? Did you know that you wanted to work in immigration law when you first started law school?
0: Um, Not necessarily, no. Um, Going into law school, it was uh, an an area of interest, I would call it. I thought it might, uh, you know, be interesting to learn about. um, But by no means, I wasn't sort of coming into law school thinking that, oh, you know, I'm for sure, I'm going to be an immigration refugee lawyer. um, You know, from you know. September, you know, first of September, uh, first day of law school kind of thing. Um, That wasn't necessarily my goal walking in. Um, But as far as how I got interested in immigration law, um, I don't think I realized this until um, I had to sort of think about it for this podcast when you had sent me the question beforehand. Um, But I think the first time I got interested in immigration law was actually when I was a child, when I was quite young. Um, I'm the son of a first generation Canadian. And I can recall growing up when I was really little learning that my dad wasn't a Canadian citizen. But my mother was. And so I can remember being really little and being really confused and thinking, you know, why isn't my dad a Canadian citizen and not really understanding that, you know, at that young age of, I don't know, maybe I was five or six years old, right? Um, And just not really understanding the difference and then learning that, well, no, that's the law and there's the rules. And as you might explain it to a five year old, um, you know, that's the sort of how I first got interested in it, I think, because, you know, that interest never really left. Even when I was in um, undergrad, I was studying uh, political science, as many law students do before they go into school. Um, And you were learning about how, um, you know, the politics of a certain country can lead to the displacement of people, be that a regime change that leads to persecution of a certain group, um, failed states and what have you. Um, And so learning about what happened to these people and where do they go after they can't stay home anymore, right? Um, When they're sort of pushed out um, and have to flee persecution, what happens there? And, you know, obviously, Canada can be a destination that uh, some people find safe. Um, and so that with that interest sort of continued into that sort of just learning about how, um, you know, refugee law in Canada um, can have an impact on people who are fleeing persecution elsewhere. And then so going into law school, like I mentioned, I knew it was sort of going to be an area of interest. So I took a immigration course in corporate immigration law, which is obviously far from uh, refugee protection, um, learning about, you know, work permits and spousal sponsorships and things like that. Um, and uh, I really liked it. I just really enjoyed it. I you know, enjoyed going to class every day and learning about this, you know, this maze of regulations and how the system works and how you can actually get, uh, you know, somebody who for no other reason has uh, any ability to stay here, whether they would like to or not, and learning how the law can uh, facilitate that, uh, that transition from going from somebody who's just sort of interested in being in Canada all the way up to being a Canadian citizen. Um, So that's sort of uh, the the path of how I ended up, uh, you know, in in Immigration Law at the end of the day. Um, It was just exploring an interest and then you learn how much you can really like it. Um, And then I got an opportunity to also work with the uh, U Ottawa Refugee Hub um, and do some research with them in my third year of law school, um, you know, which was before I ended up getting hired uh, as an articling student here with Jeremy Law and I'm still practicing here today. Um, so, you know, maybe if you go back and you tell that uh, that little kid that, you know, this question of why, you know, why isn't my dad a Canadian citizen would lead to, to something that can affect the rest of your life. Um, you know, it's uh, crazy how things can work, but that's sort of how I ended up here, I think.
1: Wow, that's just so interesting. You know, I had no idea. So maybe when you were young, it kind of that interest was sparked maybe like even subconsciously. I'm not sure. And then that kind of followed you throughout your career in your life. So that's really, really interesting. Um, and so you said that you took a course called corporate immigration?
0: Yeah, that's what it was called. Yeah. And it was all about the, the, the crux of it was basically learning about uh, more so how immigration can facilitate, um, you know, uh, people and their, their work in Canada kind of thing. So for example, um, you have a, a software company um, and they, they are trying to get this project done. And there's these awesome engineers that are somewhere else in the world, um, you know, wherever they may be. And they say, okay, we need to get them here working at our plant in Canada. Um, you know, so the HR person phones you up and they ask for your legal opinion on how they can get this person to come to Canada and work in two weeks. Go. And then you, you know, that was sort of the test question kind of thing. So that's more so what that was about. It wasn't as much about, um, you know, people fleeing persecution or things like that. It was more so about um, how businesses can grow and how businesses needs can be met through the immigration legal framework um, that exists in Canada.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So I guess there's a plug for everyone, you know, or anyone that's interested in immigration law to take that course. Um and did you take any other immigration law courses at U Ottawa?
0: Yep. So then in, uh, I took that one first, and then I also took um, immigration and refugee law at the University of Ottawa. And that, uh, you know, as the name may imply, um, dealt a lot more with more so the protection based issues and uh, humanitarian applications for permanent residence and things like that. Um, more so geared towards, you know, what happens when somebody needs to stay in Canada, as opposed to wanting to stay in Canada or would like to for financial reasons or whichever. Um, so I took that course as well. So I ended up coming out of law school. I sort of had both sides of it, um, in terms of sort of, you know, for economic reasons and also for more humanitarian reasons and the like. Um, so that, you know, I would, I ended up with both and I would definitely, if it's available to you at your law school, I would definitely recommend, um, if you're interested in it, taking both because they're, you know, as you might imagine, they're very different in the way that the programs are administered, um, the laws around them, how they're applied. Um, and also just your client base as well. Um, you know, you're going to be dealing with different people. Um, who have different needs. And so I think if you're going into immigration law, you would want to have a background in both, if it's at all possible kind of
1: thing. Mm -hmm. That definitely makes sense. And I guess my next question is, what advice do you have for students who are currently in law school who are interested in pursuing a career in immigration law? I mean, I guess you did mention um, taking, you know, those two courses in immigration law, but do you have any perhaps other advice?
0: Yeah, I think that just, you know... Oftentimes in law school, even outside of the classroom, there are lots of opportunities for you to sort of get involved and sort of just learn more about the, the area of law and its practice. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, you know, if there's a club meeting um, that you can attend for, for example, uh, Carl, which is the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, they often have uh, chapters at law school for students. If you're interested, like go to a meeting or two and uh, the events that they, are, uh, that they may be having at your school. And, you know, see what they're talking about and just sort of uh, just dive into it. Um, You know, I didn't I took those two courses, but by no means did that sort of um, lead really anywhere in terms of practicing it necessarily. Right. Just like with anything else. Oftentimes the course gives you the base knowledge. um, But with regards to actually practicing it and seeing what happens on the ground, um, that sort of learning that happens in a more practical sense that happened through. Uh, for example, my work with the out of our refugee hub and attending events through, you know, Amnesty International that may be having events with regards to refugee protection. Um, Carl, I mentioned earlier, they would have events and things like that. Um, so really just look for other opportunities that are outside the classroom to learn um, and just learn as much as you can. Um, you know, either way, it'll be helpful for you. Either you may realize that perhaps it's not the area for you or you'll realize that it is. And you can uh, make connections with people there um, that can end up, uh, you know, leading leading to you starting your career after law school.
1: Mhm I think that's that's great advice. I think you know a lot of times as students we get so caught up in the, our classes and our grades which of course is so important super important which is partly why it's so stressful but I guess it's also great to kind of take yourself you know out of that and go, go join some clubs and go see what's out there and connect with other individuals um who are in the same field or in the field that you want to practice in. So perhaps that's also important as well. And, you know, law school is very stressful. Do you have any general advice or insights for law students on maybe how to time manage or kind of organize their life in a way that's that's best?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's tough to say because I think that everybody um, has their own, you know, strengths and weaknesses just, you know, in life generally. Right. And I think law school is no different. Um, so, you know, there's no, you know, sometimes, you know, when I was going through school, you'd hear certain advice, like, oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z when you manage your time, or you need to do this and that, um, you know, to be successful. And I found that sometimes that advice was like, you know, well, that worked for you, but why would that work for me? Right. I have a completely different life circumstance or what have you. Um, so I'll sort of hazard from, uh, you know, try not to make that same, that same error that i thought sometimes other people may have made. Um, but I think in general, really just, uh, when you're in law school, like it's really hard. Right. It's a, it's a really difficult time, um, both in your academic life and your professional life and in your personal life as well. It could be. Um, so really just be kind to yourself and be kind to the people around you. Um, and the other thing as well is, you know, if if your time allows for it and if your timetable allows for it, with courses, um, this is really probably one of the last times in your life where you're going to be able to learn about what you're interested in, as opposed to making sure that you are up to date and learning about what you're paid to be interested in. When it comes to the law. So, um, you know, maybe take advantage if you have a spare course uh, in your in your timetable, then, you know, take something that just interests you off the wall in your third year if you're able to kind of thing. Um, But other than that, um, you know, just try and try and enjoy it as best you can. I know it's difficult and just uh, be kind.
1: That's great advice. And I know that um, at the University of Ottawa, there are so many courses that one can take. Um, I think this year they were offering, um, I mean, I wasn't really enrolled in it, um, but they were offering uh, COVID-19 and the law, um, which is very relevant now, and um, so many other amazing courses. So, um, so that's great. And I guess moving on into kind of more immigration law in practice, can you tell us what your day-to-day looks like in terms of practicing immigration law? Uh,
0: so my day-to-day, um, it's a lot of, you know, writing legal arguments, a lot of legal research, um, you know, as you might imagine, no two client circumstances are ever going to be identically the same. So you're never going to be able to sort of copy paste or, Um, you know, use one framework, you know, in between each client specifically, right? It's not like other areas of law where this is a tenant contract and you're basically just plugging the holes. Um, Every client's going to have a specific factor or circumstances that are going to sort of change how the law is going to apply them specifically. So a lot of the time is spent just sort of making sure that uh, your legal research is done and that you have um, the best strategy for each client. Um, You know, a lot of it as well is just sort of corresponding with your client. Um, immigration law and its practice is an incredibly sort of people focused industry and very client focused. Um, And so a lot of time is just spent making sure you're corresponding with your client, you know, making sure that they're aware of what's going on with their application, Um, giving them feedback on the evidence that they've been able to provide, um, you know, and just making sure that they're, they're part of the process too. Um, You know, a lot of times it's a very frightening process for people. Um, It's certainly very stressful for the clients. So I find that making sure that you're, you're, you're on the same page as they are. And making sure that they just don't feel like they've handed you their, you know, handed you their file and their money and sort of off you went. And they, you know, they're they're just going to be more stressed out, um, perhaps, if you just sort of, you know, don't keep them involved in the process um, and ensure that they, they're, uh, they're aware of what's happening. So um, a lot of that, uh, you know, is just sort of making sure that your client is uh, kept apprised of things. And that's a big part of my day as well, is just sort of corresponding with my clients because they're people, too, at the end of the day. Um, and you you need to make sure that they're taken care of in uh, more ways than just making sure that their their immigration matter is uh, is cared for. You need to make sure that you're managing the person as well and uh, keeping them keeping them informed when they need to be, um, I think, is a big part of that.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So I guess being an immigration lawyer, a part of it is having really great maybe client service skills, customer service skills.
0: Yeah, I think in a lot of areas of law, um, you know, customer service skills are are something that are very transferable. Like for myself, I grew up working customer service jobs throughout school, right, when I was, you know, high school, undergrad, and, uh, you know, through law school summers kind of thing was all customer service. And, you know, you would think that that's all that's not going to matter when I'm a lawyer, but it's actually kind of surprising how much of those skills um, you end up bringing into your into your practice. Um, You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's still, you know, just person relations, right? Um, Just like, you know, whether you're selling you know, a t-shirt at H&M or, you know, you're selling legal services right at the end of the day, you still are talking to people and you need to make sure that uh, that you're listening to their needs and that you're hearing them and that you are sort of adjusting your conduct and your advice uh, in a way to make sure that uh, that they're taken care of as best you can.
1: Right. For folks that are interested in practicing pretty much any type of law, they, they shouldn't really discount those Kind of customer service jobs, maybe even you know as a waitress or working at a retail store, maybe those jobs also do have transferable skills that would be very useful um, when you're practicing as a lawyer.
0: Oh absolutely, yeah, re- re- realistically right It's, a, it's a, a lot of law is uh, at least immigration law too, for sure is uh, it's people driven, right and it's people focused. Uh, so, you know, anything that, you know, those, any of those sort of people skills that you can get those interpersonal skills, you know, they may not be the flashiest job and it may have been for, for minimum wage when you were 16, 17. Um, but there's certainly, you know, there's certainly skills between each of those jobs that I think are transferable, um, between practicing law and, uh, and doing anything else that you, that you may have in your, in your past uh, work experience as a, as a student.
1: In your daily practice, was there anything that you were like, oh, I had no idea this is what immigration law consists of or anything that you were surprised once you were practicing immigration law?
0: Yeah, I think uh, one of the things too, and this, uh, this may be for other areas of law as well, but I think that you know when you're in law school, you learn a lot about what, oh, here's what the Supreme Court said about you know this particular area, um, this particular application type or whichever. Here's the law that you need to apply, um, handed down from the judge kind of thing. And that's all very important. But a lot of what's important too in really practical terms is just making sure you're up to date on what the, the policy requirements are. Um, for example, you know, you can have all the best jurisprudence in your written arguments for your agency application. But if you didn't pay attention to the fine print on the, you know, document checklist that IRCC gives, and you didn't submit the right passport photos, um, and then that application gets sent back, because you missed, uh, you missed something like that, that isn't really taught in law school, but that a policy and those types of sort of non legislated requirements are a big part of my day and making sure that uh, those details are ironed out, um, and make sure, making sure that that part of it is taken care of. Um, so, you know, you need to know what it's, what Sammy uh, says from the Supreme Court, but you also need to make sure that uh, that the, the finer points of the form answers and things like that are also taken care of um, because all those fancy arguments are, are, are great and they're very helpful and supportive. Um, but if you don't have some of those minor details, sometimes they can be undermined.
1: Mm, so it seems like immigration law, there's a lot of different sources of immigration law. And so you kind of, as a lawyer, I guess you have to be diligent and keep up to date on all of these sources, not just major Supreme Court decisions.
0: Yeah, most definitely. So for example, you have legislation, which is the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, um, as well as the regulations made under that, uh, that provision and that, uh, that legislation. Um, and then you also have, of course, jurisprudence, like we just spoke, talked about before, that law students will all be familiar with how that works. Um, But then you also have, for example, um, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship in Canada also has a lot of authority to sort of um, uh, make law through policy um, through their ministerial instructions. So, for example, um, through economic immigration, where somebody is trying to come to Canada um, on the basis of their skilled work experience, for example, um, which is known as uh, Express Entry is the name of the program for those interested, um, how those sort of that lottery is sort of drawn is through a ministerial instruction. It's not anything that's necessarily you know, handed down and they need to do a vote in parliament every time. Um, it's just sort of handed down by the minister. Um, and that's one way that uh, the minister's sort of discretion can influence immigration law. Um, as well as, you know, for example, most recently with COVID-19, um, a lot of the travel restrictions that uh, you all may be familiar with, including the 14-day quarantine um, after you return to Canada and the ban on uh, people coming to Canada for you know, non-essential purposes, um, that has come down through an order in council, which, again, is just handed down by the cabinet. Um, so it's not necessarily something that, you know, all the parties had to get together a vote on. It was just an emergency measure that was implemented by by the minister. Um, so there's a lot, definitely, like you mentioned, a lot of areas where um, a lot of sources, I should say, um, where the law can come from in immigration law. And you just need to make sure that you have, uh, have everything sorted out as best you can um, when you're practicing in this area.
1: Okay, great. And I am taking the immigration and refugee law course this semester Oh, good. Uh, with Professor Jamie Liu, yes. And um, one thing that I'm learning is that there's a lot of discretion um, within immigration law. And by that, I mean, like border officials have a certain amount of discretion, I think, and ministers have a certain amount of discretion, I think. And so how does that play when you are you know, preparing case for a client. Let's say.
0: Well, I think that you know, at least when it comes to my practice, you know, the discretion that a that a particular decision maker may be given, um, you just try and use that discretion to your advantage. Um, so that's where your you know, as a lawyer, your role as an advocate can really come in handy, um, and you can you can use that as an opportunity. So you know, on the on one side of it, you think, okay, well, it's not, it's really uncertain. There's a lot of discretion here. Um, the officer can sort of decide what they need to. But the opportunity that presents itself with that is they have the discretion for me to persuade them as well. Um, so you can make sure that you have strong evidence um, that your client can provide and you make sure you advise on that. Um, if there's any evidence that you're allowed to provide as well in terms of um, you know, having research um, that's presented. So, for example, for a refugee claim, it's quite common that we'll go and find uh, independent news articles that may speak to the country conditions in a particular country um, and how, how the persecution of a particular group has been documented in the news and present that. Um, as well as, you know, doing your, you know, your legal research, right, going into going into Canley and finding the recent uh, federal court decisions um, for, you know, if you have a refugee claim from a particular country, and a particular social group is a, is, a, you know, is the, the nexus of persecution is with that particular social group. And you can find a case in Canley, um, when you're doing your research that speaks to that particular issue, then you want to make sure that you find that and you provide that to um, the immigration refugee board member um, for their for their consideration. So you can use that discretion there again to their advantage, and just sort of, sort of showing them that your discretion is going to fall one way or the other. Here's why it needs to fall this way, um, and that uh, that way, of course, is the way that uh, you know keeps your client in the country or otherwise meets their immigration objective.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess so. You can you kind of use that discretion to your advantage, and you have to really bring out your persuasive skills, I guess. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. Like another example, too, is with like uh, humanitarian and compassionate grounds applications. Uh, Typically, those are, you know, useful and where they're most employed is for people who otherwise don't have a clear route to permanent residence in Canada. Right. You know, they don't meet the express entry qualification. They're not married to a Canadian, so they can't do a spousal, uh, things like that. Right. So there's a lot of discretion there. So, you know, in that case, right, they don't meet any of the other criteria that could otherwise get them to Canada. But we can use that discretion to our advantage again. And uh, ask an officer to uh, allow them to stay in Canada as permanent residents on these humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Um, so that's just a, you know another area where where there's opportunity in that discretion as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And um, so we have mentioned COVID nineteen. So right now, as we are recording this episode, we are in the middle of the pandemic. Um, it's bad. At least where I am, uh, cases are rising again. I think we're in wave two. And the pandemic has pretty much affected every sector. And you did touch upon a little bit about how COVID-19 has affected immigration lawyers. But how has it affected the way that you deal with clients?
0: Yeah, so at least for our practice here, um, we had to, you know, as a lot of you know, businesses had to, we had to close our offices. Um, you know, once, once we got the order from the, from the provincial government to, to close up, we, we of course, followed. Um, and we ended up having to work from home. So uh, it, it felt like within the span of three days or so, I went from working downtown in Ottawa here to uh, having to work at my kitchen table. Um, and so that transition was obviously, you know, uh, something that, t- that took some time to getting used to. Um, but, uh, you know, we all, as everybody else in society did, uh, we, we just sort of had to adjust on the fly and uh, we did our best. Um, in terms of how it affects the practice of immigration law. Um, the thing is that the advice doesn't really change, obviously, right? But the law did. So, for example, I mentioned earlier the uh, orders in council that the minister has uh, has been imposing uh, since the middle of March um, regarding travel res- travel restrictions about who and who can and can't come to Canada, um, regardless of whether they have a visa to come here or not. Um, those have been updated, you know, usually about every month. And so, you know, keeping up with that is sort of part of your part of your routine at this point. And so that's changed where we normally uh, didn't have to have to focus on that, um, obviously. Um, the other thing as well that's changed is we used to rely on in-person meetings quite a bit um, on, in a more practical sense, just because it's, we find it's a lot easier to communicate with our clients um, through an in-person meeting. Um, but that obviously is, isn't safe and isn't impossible anymore. So. Uh, we all had to get very adept and uh, quick at learning uh, how zoom works and how how we can how, how we can use the technology to sort of bridge that bridge that communication gap uh, between ourselves and our clients to make sure that their you know their needs are still taken care of and that uh, you know they can still be assured that things are things are going to be progressing despite the fact that uh, a lot of the world had had to, had had to stop
1: our clients usually, are they good with Zoom? Like, are are they comfortable with Zoom? Would you say more so than in person? Or, I mean, do you yourself prefer in person versus Zoom or?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, broadly speaking, clients have been pretty good about the adjustment too. Um, I think everyone sort of has this sort of collective understanding that it might not be anybody's favorite way of communicating and having a meeting. But, um, you know, uh, life has thrown society and the world at large uh, quite a curveball here with the pandemic, and we all just sort of need to adjust. Um, and so, most of my clients have been fairly receptive to using Zoom and have, uh, you know, with a couple minor, you know, stumbles along the way, perhaps, but they've, you know, we found a way through it to make sure that we can uh, continue to, to do the work we need to. Um, but for myself, I think that you know, uh, in an in-person meeting, there's nothing that really replaces that, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of you know nonverbal communication between you and your client. Um, that doesn't really occur through a Zoom uh, just because you miss a lot of that body language. Um, as well, you know, I just find that it's, a, it's a, in-person is a lot more, you know, personable way um, to build that trust between you and your client as you're, you know, because quite often you're in this practice, you're discussing really personal matters. And sometimes you're discussing matters that, uh, that deal with uh, trauma. Right. So, for example, you know, when you're meeting with somebody and you're, you're discussing, um, you know, the details of the persecution they may have experienced in the past. Um, that's something that you would, you know, most always want to do um, in person just because it's usually a little bit easier to, to send those, those nonverbal cues that, uh, that you're listening and that you're, you know, you're, you're being, you know, conscientious of how they may be feeling. And, the, the, you know, for example, if you're dealing with a client who has gone through that persecution and perhaps they, you know, you need to be mindful of cues that they may be giving you, you know, involuntarily that they may be having a, you know, a particular symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. Um, so, you know, that that part of it just gets a little bit harder when you're telecommuting through a meeting as opposed to in person. Um, but again, so that's why, you know, for those reasons, in person is usually best, I find. Um, but, you know, it's given the, the way the world is now, we, we don't really have much of a choice. And we just sort of need to make sure that we're doing what we can as safely as possible.
1: Yeah. And can you uh, foresee any long term impacts of the pandemic on immigration law?
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, now that everyone's gotten, you know, more or less comfortable with the use of, uh, you know, video conferencing technology, I think we'll see it used a little bit more often, um, just for the, the, the simplicity of it for, for some clients, right? It's a lot easier to sort of turn on your laptop and talk to your lawyer for 20 minutes, as opposed to perhaps uh, driving in, you know, half an hour through traffic in Ottawa here to meet with your client for half an hour and then drive back, right? So it's just a lot more convenient. So I think we may see that on the practical side of things. Um, when it comes to changes to the law, um, I think, you know, it's difficult to tell from sort of the eye of the storm where we are right now on the 16th of October 2020. Um, but I think one of the things that we'll see needing to change a little bit is um, for those listening who may not be aware um, right now at the Canadian border with the United States. um Typically, people in the past, if you needed to claim refugee protection, most of the time you could come to that border if you happen to be in the United States, um, and subject to some exceptions, you would be able to make a claim for refugee protection at the United United States border with Canada. Now, the vast majority of would-be refugee claimants are not able to do that. Um, And so for the past seven months or so, since that order in council was imposed, um, you have a lot of people who perhaps are in the United States and are fearful of being deported because of, uh, you know, for example, the effects of ICE and the mandates that have been handed down by President Trump and his cabinet. Um, there's a situation now where you have all these people who, in you know, for the last seven months, would have otherwise come to Canada and claimed refugee protection um, and haven't been able to. So, you know, from my perspective, the way that I see this sort of unfolding is that eventually Canada is going to open up. Um, the border again to refugee claimants um, once it's safe to do so, and they, they deem that they should. Um, but the thing is that the the steady flow of refugees at the American border to Canada, um, that existed before. Um, I don't think it's going to be steady after that fact because um, just because we've sort of gotten rid of the ability for people to claim refugee protection at the American border doesn't mean that that need for people to claim refugee protection at the border um, stopped. It, 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 there's no way it has, right? Um, they're, they're fearing persecution in their country of origin and they still fear deportation. Um, that's still the case, um, whether the Canadian government has allowed them to, uh, to claim refugee protection or not. So I have a feeling that in the future, whenever the Canadian government um, sort of rolls back those restrictions and allows people to claim refugee protection at the border again, we're going to see a significant, significant increase in the number of refugee claimants who are, uh, who are seizing the opportunity that has been uh, deprived of them. Um, over the past several months. So, you know, I, I don't see many, many other, you know, changes that remains to be seen, but I think that that's one that, uh, um, you know, I, I think would happen uh, that I can sort of forecast from here.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you for that insight. And it's one of the things that makes immigration law so complex are all of the changes that happen, um, you know, especially as we can see during this pandemic. And also maybe exciting as well, maybe... It's an exciting practice where you're learning every day. Well, I'm not sure, but I can imagine that you're learning every day and learning on the go. And so that could be really exciting, but also very challenging at the same time.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, learning every day, I think that's that's fair. Um, If you're not learning something new every day, you're learning something new every other day kind of thing, Um, especially now with COVID-19. Right. There's so many uh, so many changes that are happening on the fly with regards to how IRCC is administering their programs. Um, you know, what regulatory changes have come through these uh, orders in council and the like. But it's also, you know, challenging as well because of all those changes, as you mentioned, and even, you know, immigration tends to also be uh, something about political football too, right? Where, uh, you know, if you go back in in history, you know, in recent history, you had, you know, a series of immigration changes that were uh, implemented into law by the former Harper administration here in Canada. And then, you know, there were further changes that were uh, implemented and some of them, uh, those Harper era changes to the law were reversed by the Trudeau administration and there were other rules that were implemented and things of that nature. So, um, you know, I think if you go into immigration law, you can expect that uh, every time there's a government turnover, you can reasonably expect that uh, there's going to be some changes to the immigration law um, as well with that, that can be fairly, fairly drastic. Um, so, you know, it, it's definitely not, one, uh, not an area of law that you would end up bored in very quickly, I don't think.
1: Right. So all those future immigration lawyers out there, you can definitely look forward to that. Um, you know, an exciting kind of career that you have to keep up to date every day and um, keep up to date with the changes every day. That's pretty much all the questions I had. But thank you so much, Andrew, for uh, sharing all of your wonderful insights into the world of immigration law. Uh, It's been amazing talking with you.
0: Oh, no, thank you for having me, Miho. Um, And I hope uh, I hope people were enjoyed, enjoyed listening. And I hope that uh, if they're interested in immigration law, that they're able to. to to continue exploring that interest because it really is a fascinating area of law to practice um, and I, I truly enjoy it. It's truly really a rewarding area. So if you are interested, I encourage anyone listening to uh, to explore that interest.
1: Thank you. And yes, for all of the listeners out there, I hope you learned something new and I guess stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned for the next episode.
0: You've just been listening to the Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice, right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time,
1: on The Law School Show.